You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, last time we opened up the great big box of prophecy and uh, attempted to apply our interpretive principles that we've been learning to prophecy. And uh, as we're doing with every other area, and remember how we started, uh, Dr. Zuck calls these things gaps. We have gaps that we have to overcome. And last time we talked about overcoming and applying the literal method of interpretation to the prophecy gaps. So did you have any thoughts or questions on uh, anything we talked about last time? And I'm fully aware that when we talk about these issues every week that uh, we're just touching the surface on them, okay? But what we're really trying to do here is develop a, a methodology for interpreting all of these things. So, um, you know, we could spend months studying any one of these topics, so I understand that. So uh, when I say, do you have any questions, I know that's <laughs> that's a loaded question itself. So, But uh, any questions about applying the literal hermeneutic to the issue of prophecy? Okay, and by the way, if you haven't gotten it yet, there is a, a handout tonight, a uh, couple of pages. Well, it's actually four pages. The uh, one page, the top page, is on some additional interpretive rules, and we will go through these if we have time tonight. I wasn't sure how much time we were going to have, and so I wanted to at least put them into your hands so you could have them and take a look at them. Some of them we've already talked about already, and the other one is a, an article by uh, Dr. Mike Block, who's done some really fine work in the area of um, what we're going to talk about this evening, the use of the uh, uh, the Old Testament, how it is used by the New Testament writers and and speakers and so on. Uh, and he's got a book that came out pretty current. I think it's only a couple of years old on, on that topic. So I recommend it to you. But that particular article is from his uh, blog site. So it's, uh, I think you'll, uh, you'll enjoy reading that. Okay. Then how about some questions from page 44? First group are from chapter 10 of your reading. Only God can predict the future because he is omniscient and omnipotent. That true? Yeah, that's true. For sure, that's true. Here's a statement from Isaiah. Um, one of many, I had like several of them, but this is just chapter 41, 21 through 24. Isaiah, as you know, is God's prophet. And we saw the, the range of topics that a prophet could cover. It's not just predicting the future, but it's also confrontation with sin, like Nathan did with David and, and those kinds of things. And even the upon confession of sin, the uh, promise of forgiveness and comfort and that type of thing. But before he gets there, Isaiah just pulls out the old, uh, hate to use an anachronistic metaphor, but the old uh, hickory baseball bat against the idolaters. It's just scathing. He says, bring near your case, Yahweh says. Bring forward your mighty arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring it forth and declare to us what is going to take place as for the former events. Declare what they were, that we may establish our heart on them and know their outcome, or cause us to hear what is coming. Declare the things that are to come afterward, that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is non-existent. He who chooses you is an abomination. Against the idols and the idol worshipers, and he continuously challenges them. And there's multiple passages through that prophecy, through Isaiah, that just challenges the idols and say, go ahead, predict the future. Can you do it? They can't do it. So only God can predict the future because he is the only one who is omniscient and omnipotent. And then, true prophets were 100% accurate in their prophecies. True. Absolutely. That was a requirement. Um, they had a very efficient way of weeding out the ones that weren't. Okay, uh, if, and, they, and everybody knew it, too. There weren't a whole lot of people running around doing that and without uh, very permanent um, and severe consequences if they were wrong. And even if they were right, 
if that prophecy came true and it led people away from the worship of Yahweh, they were a false prophet. So it didn't matter if they were true, if if the uh, result was the uh, uh, putting stumbling blocks against the worship of Yahweh, they were still a false prophet. Interpreting eschatology, the last things, requires special hermeneutics. That's a false, yeah. We're taking the same interpretive principles and applying them right straight through the Bible, cover to cover. That's one of the tests of an interpretive system. Is it consistent? Okay, can you be consistent with it? Do you have to uh, alter the rules at the end of the game and give a four-minute warning instead of a two-minute warning, as we talked about? And then prophecies concerning the first advent were fulfilled spiritually. That's false. That's false. You have uh, on one of the pages in your notes a list of literally fulfilled prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ, and those are just concerning the issues surrounding his death on the cross, his death, okay? And they were all fulfilled literally. The the literal fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies certified Jesus' right to be called Messiah. In other words, they certified his Messianic uh, credentials at his first coming, and they will do the very same thing at his second coming. All of the messianic prophecies concerning his second coming, if they're not fulfilled literally by that person when he comes, he's not the Messiah. Okay, It's as simple as that. He's already set the precedent for how these things are fulfilled. The focal point of biblical prophecy is all about me and my future. It's all about me! (laughs) Self, self, self. Take a selfie. That's false. The premillennial view was invented in the 19th century. Hope you had a chance to read that page where we talked about, uh, where it talks about the uh, the issue of timing on that. You're going to hear this a lot if you're a, if a YouTube theologian. Well, you know the the uh, premillennial position didn't come into place until John Nelson Darby in 1830. That is absolutely demonstrably untrue. Uh, you can even you don't even need. Uh, I gave you the information from Dr. Watson. I encourage you to listen to some of those messages. Very fascinating. But also, even in uh, history, in the the patristic history, when they wrote on the topic, the early church fathers, the patristic theologians, were premillennial, and the uh, amillennial position didn't come into play until it got in ensconced in the Catholic system, and then came right down through history, unreformed by the reformers. They didn't reform everything, uh, and that was one of the things they did not reform. So it uh, certainly was not invented in the 19th century. And uh, that, on page 100, it's it's a hermeneutical issue, and it's be well worth your time to look at uh, what Dr. Watson has come up with. And then number two, as with the rest of Scripture, the two basic starting point principles for interpreting are the Bible is a book, the Bible is a divine book. So you may in your reading see something to the effect that it, it says that God's, God used propositional form or propositional format. Simply he, he communicated in statements. And those statements can be evaluated, they can be tested. And so we have an objective revelation, but it's God, God's Word. So all the things we looked at when we started the study, uh, the very nature of God's Word is dependent on the God who spoke the word. So that's that's the foundational point. And then in Matthew twenty five thirty one, the sequence of events will be when Son of Man comes in his glory, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Um, here it is right here. And I wanted to point this out because we didn't spend much time talking about looking for these little words that, that tell you sequential things and that are that communicate time and uh, time frame. And here you have it right here in this passage. This is Jesus' own words talking about his future coming. He calls himself the Son of Man. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And and now not watch how he refers to himself. This is a self-reference here by Jesus. He starts out calling himself the Son of Man, and then after he comes and sits on his throne, then the king will say to those on his right, 
Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Later on, down in the context, again, he refers to himself as the king. That's really significant. That's a, that's a shift and a change that doesn't happen until he returns and sits on the glorious throne of David. Okay, so there's a there's a time frame there. So look for these words that indicate uh, time frame and time reference. When, then, even words like until, God said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's when you see an until in Scripture, something's coming to an end. Okay, something's coming to an end. Those kinds of things. And then number four, the prophets often could not see the time distance between future events because of, well, they weren't very smart, they were running for their lives, or something called foreshortening. Foreshortening, yeah. We're going to talk about this a little later on. Uh, it's also called double reference, okay? Double reference. That's actually on that first page of your notes there, and hopefully we'll have time to go through that a little bit. They could not see... Um, what the time gap was between these. We're going to be talking about Zechariah 9, 9, and 10 is one of the classic clear examples uh, where it talks about the Lord um, riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, right, <clears throat> which happened. And then the very next statement speaks about a, an issue that has not happened yet, and yet they were right, one right after the other. It's in this very same context, ex except what can't be seen from that context is the time gap between those two events. We're going to be looking at that, hopefully, a little later on. And then in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel makes several predictions to Zechariah and Mary concerning the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. Some evangelicals take them all literally, except the prophecy in verse 32b through 33. In verse 20, Gabriel assures a doubting Zechariah that, my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And then later on in the passage, when he comes to Mary, when Mary questioned the possibility of, of the fulfillment of the prophecies of Gabriel, he told her in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Even you go back to Isaiah, and that's going to be one of those passages that we look at that has that double, ref, double reference in it. The famous one we hear about at Christmas time, uh, unto us a son will be born. Okay. Um, you go down through that passage and it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And that includes the same thing that, uh, Gabriel tells Mary about that he, this baby, this child will sit on the throne of his father David and it'll be an eternal kingdom. So, um, it's going to happen. And then number six. Here's a question. Should we use biblical prophecy in evangelism? Of course. How do you think it would be received in today's culture? Should that make a difference to us? Like the gospel message. Did it make a difference to God's people in the past? Did how he was received change how, change how Jesus preached future events? What do you think about that? Fulfill prophecy? Now, I understand that in the past, just the past, uh, it's been abused in many circles, okay? Uh, there's a saying that somebody has said, you know, prophecy has uh, suffered as much from its friends as it has from its enemies, but uh, it's still a major part of Scripture. And so we, like every other section of Scripture that's been abused or misunderstood or mistaught or whatever, um, that shouldn't be our issue. Our issue is, be, is to understand it and to teach it, proclaim it, um, because it's part of God's Word, and it's an important part of God's Word. So um, remember what Philip did when he encountered the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading Isaiah 53? Okay, He preached Christ from Isaiah 53, right? And he convinced this man to trust in Jesus Christ by that passage. So there's a good example in the book of Acts and all the way through the book of Acts. When they encountered Old, uh, when they encountered people, they used the Old Testament and fulfilled prophecy to uh, bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. So it's very important, and we should do the same thing. Okay, any other thoughts you might have on that? All right, well, let's flip to page 45 and jump right into the 
Testament gap, how the new uses the old. And again, we're simply going to take the method that we've talked about and we're going to apply it. And so we apply the literal method in observing the Testament gap. Dr. Zuck, in his, uh, in your reading said there's 250 to 300 quotations, 442 plus allusions. And I think he said in Revelation, there are no quotations and they're not but 331 plus allusions, okay? Now, I've uh, read uh, other authors and writers who see as many as 400 allusions in the book of Revelation, even more than that. There are no direct quotations, but that many at least allusions to the Old Testament. What's going on here? Well, John, remember, he is the apostle to the circumcised. He's writing to Jewish people as a Jew. He, and he's writing late first century, at least 90, maybe 95. I think probably a good date to date Revelation is maybe 95. He's assuming the knowledge of his readers. Okay. He doesn't have to go back and, and uh, ground them in the Old Testament. He is uh, assuming their knowledge of the Old Testament, and so all he has to do is make an allusion to these things. And even though there is much symbolism in Revelation, it's either explained within the context, what the symbol means, or it's someplace else in the Old Testament. And um, I've seen estimates with as high a percentage as around 96% consistency in how the symbolism is used throughout the Bible, including in the book of Revelation. So I've also heard some contemporary folks, theologians, say, well, you really can't understand the, the book of Revelation because it's so symbolic. It's so symbolic, you know. Well, that's true, but the symbols are explained in the text itself or elsewhere in Scripture. The antidote to that is just get to know the Old Testament better, and you'll have a better picture of what Revelation is, is saying there. And so there's multiple, multiple quotations throughout Scripture and many, many more allusions to the Old Testament. And, of course, Dr. Zuck does a really good job of going through, and even though there are uh, variations in the wording, uh, in sometimes some grammatical issues, some a few omissions, we're going to be talking about some of that, partial quotes, the use of synonyms instead of the actual word itself, <clears throat> And even some, maybe some new, uh, you get a little more information or new understanding of it. It does not mean that, that that usage is invalid. The critics love to see something that they consider to be a, a contradiction in the Word of God. And yet when you look at these things, and we're going to be talking about the usages and how it's used, um, it's fully understandable. And in fact, you could probably just say, well, they use it much like we would use history or making references to things, fully legitimate. And uh, even the many, many quotes from the Septuagint, and here from Dr. Zuck on page 259, evangelical scholars have pointed up that no New Testament quotation from the Septuagint differs in any substantive way from the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay, So even though they're using the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they're using it uh, very accurately, and it was a very, and it is a very accurate translation. Don't forget when you hear about the Septuagint and you hear that it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Remember who translated it? Who? The Jews. They were very meticulous about how they handled the text of Scripture and how they how they transcribed and preserved it and everything. So it's very very reliable. Well, then we move to D in the outline. The purpose. Dr. Zuck has 10 ways the New Testament quotes the Old and multiple examples. I won't go through all of these. We're going to see a few of them later on when we look at uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum's um, formula for this. But to show fulfillment, clearly a prophecy and then a fulfillment to show that, an example. We're going to be looking at this a little later on. Micah 5.2 is one example of that. Or to show agreement. Um to explain an Old Testament point, his uh, example is Acts chapter 2 and how Peter refers to Joel chapter 2 when he says, this is that or this is what he spoke about. But when you go and you look at Joel, you don't see anything there about people speaking in tongues. But what you do see is him talking about these these cataclysmic cosmic changes that are going to be taking place. But when you look in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, none of that is mentioned. 
Okay, so what's going on? How is Peter using it? He's simply using it as an as a um, uh, to explain an Old Testament point, and then to support a New Testament point. He uh, goes into quite lengthy discussion of that on pages two sixty one and two sixty two. It's used to illustrate a New Testament truth. Romans ten and and Paul's use of Isaiah fifty three is an example. To apply the Old Testament to a New Testament incident or truth, simple application is a is one of the ways it's used. Or and to summarize, this is a big category. To summarize an Old Testament concept, or to use Old Testament terminology to simply make a New Testament point in some way, shape, or form. To draw a parallel with an Old Testament incident, and to relate an Old Testament situation to Christ or to heighten the Old Testament meaning. We're going to look at this one from Hosea 11.1. That very interesting in Matthew's uh, second chapter of Matthew, he uh, he references Hosea 11.1 concerning Jesus being brought back from Egypt back to Jerusalem after King Herod died and the threat on his life was gone. Okay, And he quotes Hosea 11.1. We're going to be looking at that one. And so you can see Zuk has... Ten ways that this is used. Um, I hope you had an opportunity to read Dr. Fruchtenbaum's part of the the notes. It's about four pages in the back about how the uh, how this is used in his uh, great book, Israelology: The Missing Link in Systematic Theology. This is a massive work. It's huge. It's over a thousand pages, and it's a uh, it's actually his. Uh, it was. It's from his doctoral doctoral dissertation that he he did on Israelology at New York University. When he did that work, he did it over a long period of time. It, he turned it in. It was two thousand pages, and they rejected it because as yeah, it's a doctoral dissertation, it was too long. So he had to cull it all down. I think he wound up with three or four hundred pages. But this book is is the result of about thirteen years of study by him. And he, you can tell from his name. Fruchtenbaum, he's a Messianic Jew. He really, really knows the Old Testament really well. And so it's a profitable study. We're going to talk a little bit about what he does, how he sees this this um, usage of the Old Testament. He boils it down to four categories, and I think it's very helpful. Okay, so any questions or thoughts you have so far on, on that? Simply applying the same principles of interpretation we uh, observe what we see in Scripture in the same way, and then we take our observations and we try to then interpret them. And this is uh, Roman numeral 2 at the top of 46. The literal method in interpreting the Testament gap. The biblical authors did not always comprehend all they wrote. Okay, Now, they knew a lot. They understood quite a bit of it, but they did not understand every bit of it. It was not revealed to them yet. Much of it was not revealed. And that uh, Daniel 12, 6 through 8 is a reference. John 11, 44 through 52. And of course, probably the best known reference is from 1 Peter 1, 10 and 12. It says that, uh, well, let's just look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And he makes a statement there that I think uh, captures this. 1 Peter chapter 1. And it's verse 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Okay. Remember the two categories that Jesus said, you, you are slow to believe all that the prophets have prophesied, and the two categories were the suffering and the glory. And so they tried, they wrote what they wrote and understood what they wrote to a degree, but then they tried to figure out who is this person and uh, that, that, that the prophecy is actually prophesying about. So they did not fully understand all that they wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. By the way, a reference to that, if you look at that Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, pages 55 and 56 um, in your notes, Article 13, 
they comment on this very fact, and one of the denials that they make, top of page 56, under Article 13, which actually starts on 55, at the very top it says, We deny that it is proper to evaluate Scripture according to standards of truth and error that are alien to its usage or purpose. We further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena, such as a lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of, or grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature. We're going to be looking at that. The reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole and round numbers, the topical arrangement of material, variant selections of material in parallel accounts, or the use of free citations. Um, part of the problem comes in when people see this is to fulfill, uh, and they assume that the fulfillment has to be a, a literal fulfillment. Okay, We're going to talk about that a little bit too as we look at Dr. Fruchtenbaum's uh, categories. The word fulfillment can have a broader range than that of meaning and usage. Okay, It could be just the fulfillment of a, of a type. Like we talked about types being predictive. You have a type, and it's fulfilled by an antitype. It may not be a literal fulfillment of a prophecy like uh, like the one from Micah 5.2, but it's the fulfillment of a type. That is still fulfillment, and that's, that's their point here. Uh, they get... Uh, the problem is not that the Bible doesn't uh, is not accurate or is not inerrant. The problem is the critic's definition of the word fulfillment. Okay, it's a broader usage than that. And also in B, progressive revelation must be acknowledged. Now we talked about this: the idea that the Bible is revealed progressively. We have a tendency to take what we see and know, and then perhaps read that back into the Old Testament in a degree, in a variety of ways. One of them is to assume that those folks back then could understand what we know, having the full, fully orbed, completed canon of Scripture. And they just didn't. They couldn't in many cases. Uh, it had not been revealed yet. So progressive revelation has to be acknowledged. That's part of the picture. And again, we talked about the, the, uh, the suffering of Messiah uh, until about 700 B.C., with Isaiah's prophecy, it was not known that, that this coming Redeemer would die for his people. Uh, they knew, and we talked about uh, Genesis 3.15, they could know that this that the Redeemer will be God and man, okay, the seed of the woman, and yet not that he would die for their sins was progressively revealed. And then we have to account for expansion of meaning may be expressed by heightening. In other words, an Old Testament type is not as um, not as full an expression as the the antitype. Okay, a type of Christ is not as high a revelation or as a full revelation as Christ Himself, who is the fulfillment of the type. That's what that heightening issue is all about. And then scripture has a single meaning, but related sub-meanings. Uh, viewed by Dr. Johnson, quoted by Dr. Zuck here, it's called references plenier, more Latin here. But simply getting back to the idea that there's a single meaning for a, a verse in scripture. In fact, there's a single meaning for a word in a context. There's a single meaning for how that word is even spelled. Remember Jesus talking about the jot and the tittles? Okay. The jot is the yod of the Hebrew text. That's the smallest letter. It's just, it looks like a little comma, yod. Okay. So, so the, the words, even the, the way the words are spelled, uh, contribute a single meaning to the clause or the sentence, the sentence to the paragraph, the paragraph to the so on, on and on. Okay. A single meaning and not a double meaning. And, um, this is, the way that you're going to have to approach it, because otherwise you're going to wind up with a word of God that that is um, uh, cannot be fully understood. If there's two meanings or two potential meanings, then God is double-minded. Maybe he's uh, saying co things that are contradictory. So there's a single meaning for each verse and each passage. And when you do this, this is going to be consistent with the literal method and a single meaning per text. It's going to be consistent with the New Testament usage of the Old Testament, how it uses, how the 
New Testament uses the Old Testament, the quotations that are made and so on. And it's also consistent with progressive revelation. It's consistent with avoiding interpreting allegorically. We did some work in that way back when, talking about the two schools of interpretation. Uh, Antioch, where they were very much influenced by apostolic interpretive principles, but then down in, in Egypt and Alexandria, where the school of allegory developed through Origen and then Augustine and so on, and then it just seeped into the church, came right straight down through the Catholic Church, and through right through the Reformation, unreformed, and it's some of it's still with us to this day. It's not legitimate as a interpretive method. There is allegory in Scripture, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about interpreting allegorically. And uh, that's the imposition of a meaning from outside the text onto the text itself. And then according to J.I. Packer, a sub-meaning or referent remains an extrapolation on the grammatico-historical plane, not a new projection onto the plane of allegory or spiritualizing, we could say. Dr. Zuck quotes him there, and, and that's a good statement because you it it still is on the grammatical historical plane and within that framework of interpreting the Word of God. And it's not something that it kicks the door open for imposing an allegorical meaning onto the text. All right? And it's also consistent with the New Testament use of the Psalms. And Dr. Zuck there in those pages talks a little bit about that. If you don't have any questions about that, let's look at... Uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum's use of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I really like the article, and I really like what he did, does there, because, number one, he, uh, he, he's able to do this right out of Matthew chapter 2. Let's look at Matthew chapter 2, and we'll see his categories. Because in Matthew chapter 2, all four of Dr. Fruchtenbaum's categories are here, and I think he also... Uh, if you haven't read that those pages yet, make sure you do because he does it just a real good job explaining it, and and I think it's it's a good a good framework for understanding how the New Testament uses the Old. Remember, uh, this this is a Jewish framework. Okay, I've heard people say, you know, we need to we need to read the Bible like Christians as Christians. Well, I agree. We need to read the Bible as Christians. Christians who understand that the Bible was written by Jewish people, right? It's a Hebrew book, and it's about a Jewish or Hebrew Messiah who, when he comes back, he's coming back as a Jewish king, okay? So, of course, we need to read it as Christians, but Christians who understand what the Word of God actually says. But use of the Old Testament and the New. This is from uh, Dr. Vlock's really, really good book about this is from the preface to the book. About 10% of the New Testament consists of quotations and allusions to the Old Testament. But if you were to ask a group of Christians to articulate their view as to how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, you would likely receive blank or puzzle stares. And then again, based on an inductive study of the biblical evidence, this book will argue that the New Testament uses of the Old Testament in an overwhelmingly contextual manner. The New Testament is not reinterpreting or transforming the text or overall message of the Old Testament. Again, we take this method and we, we don't come up with conclusions where it's reinterpreted. If it has a different meaning, something's not right, okay? Because God is, is consistent all the way through. So, Dr. Fruchtenbaum's four ways the New Testament quotes the Old. Literal prophecy plus literal fulfillment. Uh, Matthew 2, 5 through 6, he uses Micah 5, 2. Okay? He quotes uh, this prophecy, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Um, Micah 5, 2 Bethlehem, this is the LSB, I just read the ESV. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, Ephratah was the original name of Bethlehem, and there's two different ones in two different locations. This is the one that he's talking about. 
Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from everlasting, from the ancient days. An actual prophecy with the literal fulfillment um, used by Matthew in that way. The second way is literal plus typical. Matthew 2.15, he's quoting Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is again in the context of when Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus back up out of Egypt, back to the nation of Israel, and yet he's not going back to Exodus and making a reference back to the actual event, he's using Hosea 11.1 in a different way. Hosea 11.1 says, Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So he's not saying this is a literal fulfillment. It is a typological fulfillment. It's a type. The Old Testament is the type, and Jesus coming out of Egypt as a baby back to the, the nation of Israel is the antitype. That's how he's, how he's using it there. A third way it's used, literal plus application. Matthew 2, 17 through 18, and it's a quotation of Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus says Yahweh, a voice is heard in Ramah, wailing and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Well, the story in Jeremiah's prophecy, Ramah was uh, sort of a, a place when the exile happened to Babylon where people were sort of herded and marshaled and pe- women were having to say goodbye to their loved ones there and because they weren't going to see them again, they thought. Well, the parallel is, of course, the the murder of the little two-year-old and younger babies by King Herod. Those two things are not related except for that particular um, uh, commonality that they have, that these mothers will be wailing and weeping for their children that they're not going to see again. So it's literal plus application. It's not a literal fulfillment of a prophecy. There isn't a prophecy there. It's just simply the way he's using it in that way as an application. And then the fourth way he sees is a summary statement, Matthew 2.23. Matthew 2.23, but when he... I chose another one. Let's use Matthew 2.23, and then we'll do this one too. I like them both. 2.23, um, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. You cannot find that quotation any place or a reference to it any place in the Old Testament. So what's going on here? Critics would say, well, see, Matthew didn't know what he was talking about, and the Bible has errors in it. Well, no. Notice very carefully, and Dr. Fruchtenbaum bring this out, all three of the prior uh, uh, examples, verse 5, written by the prophet. And then uh, the next one, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And uh, by the prophet. But down in verse 23, by the prophets. Why? Because there's no one place where it says this. But they all knew as, as Jewish people what it meant to be called a Nazarene. It was kind of a general way to despise somebody. And so it's a summary statement of what the prophets all said about Jesus when he comes, the Messiah. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be despised. And so here's another usage of this um, by Jesus in Luke 18. But when he took the twelve aside, he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets, plural, about the Son of Man will be completed. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they have flogged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. No single prophet said all that stuff. So when he says the prophets, he's collecting up what they said and uh, summarizing what they said. So that's the fourth usage of the Old Testament in the New Testament. You can categorize all these things into one of those four categories. So literal prophecy plus literal fulfillment, literal plus typical and a typological uh, arrangement, 
type fulfilled by antitype, literal plus application, and then the summary statement where he mentions the prophets and not just a single prophet being quoted there. Okay, that's a encourage you to spend some time on those uh, several pages, and you'll see his explanation is is really good and it's really clear. So, any thoughts or questions you might have on that? We've seen the literal method in observation, observing the Testament gap, and then we talked about interpreting the Testament gap, and now we're going to finish off by the literal method in applying the Testament gap. Now, obviously, you can study prophecy and apply the truths of prophecy to your life. That's part of the whole issue. Uh, we saw David do that in being confronted by the prophet Nathan. He made uh, the appropriate application. But how do we apply our literal method in, in understanding this uh, usage of the Old Testament by the New? And this is on page 47. The first thing we should do is investigate the New Testament context. Context, context, context. You always want to look at the context no matter what it is, if it's New Testament or Old Testament. Look at the New Testament context in which the Old Testament quotation or allusion is found and see what you can find from that context. And then investigate the Old Testament context to which the New Testament quotation or allusion refers. This takes some time. Okay, It's a lot of hard work to interpret properly. If you have to stop and go back and thumb your way through the Old Testament, uh, it takes some work. And then you have to look at that passage in the Old Testament, maybe do some additional reading and understand it in its context. But that, that person in the New Testament who is referring to it and is using it is probably an expert in the Old Testament. Okay, And so it's good to try to enter into their thinking and thought process and to see how they're using it. We've been, we've been, Jim's been taking us through Hebrews. Okay, uh, All of those Old Testament allusions and quotations, and it's good that he goes back and, and puts you back in the context so you can understand it. But you also have to remember, when, you, when you're sitting here with your Bible and you're reading your Bible and you come across, a, let's say, a, a reference from the Gospels, let's say from the Psalms, and you go say, okay, I want to go see what that looks like, and you flip back to the Psalms, you've just gone back in time maybe a thousand years. Think about that. You've changed historical context from 2,000 years ago to if David wrote it, something like the 11th, middle of the 11th century B.C., and between here and here, flipping that page, you've just gone back in time a thousand years. Okay. And then you go, okay, I see what that means. Boom. Now you just pull forward a thousand years. You got to keep that in mind. This book covers a wide, uh, array of cultural differences and, and just the time span itself is very important to remember that. But it's good. You got to go back and look at the Old Testament context so you can understand how that writer is using it. And then note any differences, if any, between the Old Testament passage and the New Testament quotation. And again, if you see that there are some differences maybe in the wording, that doesn't mean that, that it's not part of the inerrant scripture. That writer, that speaker is using it led by the Holy Spirit of God. He's, he's still under the influence of the Spirit of God and it's still inerrant the way he's using it. And then decide how the New Testament writer or speaker is using the Old Testament reference. And I have here one of ten ways or one of the four ways. I think I think all ten of Dr. Zook's categories can be uh, subsumed under one of Dr. Fruchtenbaum's four. And then relate or synthesize your conclusions to the interpretation of the New Testament passage, asking the question... Do my conclusions demonstrate an interpretive method that is comprehensive, congruent, consistent, and coherent? Okay, very important. You can you can evaluate any interpretive system using these four things. We've been talking about them. Comprehensive. Do they include all this? All the data, all the pertinent data included, and then congruent. Do, do my conclusions fit the data that I have? And then is is it consistent? In other words, does are there no contradictions in the conclusions? And then coherent, does it make sense? Is there, a, is there a unity to it? And you can do this with the whole Bible. The whole Bible is a unit because one person is responsible for it. Comprehensive, congruent, consistent, and coherent. A few weeks ago, uh, a couple days after that horrific attack in Israel by Hamas, it became 
pretty obvious pretty quick that this was a massive organized thing. So the question came up very quickly, how did the intelligence uh, groups miss this? And uh, I caught a little bit on on one news. I don't spend a lot of time listening to these things, but uh, this was a person from Israel. He was uh, relating, the question was asked, how'd you guys miss this? And I can't remember what intelligence group he was from, but he said, well, we didn't have all the data. And the data that we did have, we didn't interpret it correctly. They weren't comprehensive and they weren't congruent. Their conclusions did not fit the data that they had. Okay. You can look at history, you know, look at history. Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. There was a radar installation way up on the North Coast that picked up those aircraft that were on their way to Pearl Harbor. And they radioed down and said, hey, we're picking up, we've got, you know, blips on the radar screen. And they pass it off as something other than, you know, the Japanese uh, attacking them. This happens all the time. Same thing, 911, right? Um, Guy went in and wanted flight lessons. Said, I want to learn how to take off, and I want to learn how to get from point A to point B, and I don't really care that much about landing. (laughs) He told them that. They had the data. But the conclusions, obviously, can't hardly blame them, right? Did not fit. Now, if you went in and did that today, you'd probably be in handcuffs within 30 minutes, okay? So comprehensive, congruent, consistent, and coherent. Well, let's uh, spend the rest of our time here going over some of these additional interpretive rules. Now, we've already seen this one. We've talked about it a little bit. But if you're doing much work in hermeneutics, you're going to see this repeated over and over again. This is from a book by a, a scholar named Dr. David L. Cooper, Probably written back in the early 40s, I think. Um, But it just makes so much sense. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context, studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths, indicate clearly otherwise. Take it for what it says. And we've seen that the word normal, the normal meaning, the normal usage over and over again in our study. And another one, the rule of context. Again, we're talking about context. A text apart from its context is a pretext. The meaning of a verse can only be determined when it is interpreted within its context. The context within the passage is important. But the other contexts must be considered, such as historical, social, geographic, religious, cultural, and those kinds of things. And we've these things that Dr. Zuck calls the gaps, the gaps that we have to overcome. But context is just really critical. You know what it's like if you're ever taken out of context by something that you say? Okay, You know what that feels like? Keep it in its context. And then the rule of double reference, okay? Dr. Zook calls this prophetic foreshortening. The observation that certain passages or sections of Scripture are referring to two different events or persons that are separated by a period of time not clearly evident in the passage. The passage may appear to be speaking of a single person or event, but the time gap is known from other Scriptures and events progressively revealed. Here again, we're back to what did they know and when did they know it? Okay, rule of double reference. Now, don't confuse this with what some people call um, double fulfillment. Okay, there are those that say there is such a thing as a double fulfillment or a dual fulfillment of a certain thing. I don't personally, I don't believe there is such a thing. I think there's a single meaning, but I think you can have a double referent. In other words, an example, and we've already seen this, Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, lowly and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. Very next verse, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his reign will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, clearly, the first one happened, fulfilled in Matthew 21, 1 through 11, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. Very clearly says that. 
Okay? But the second one has not happened yet. It awaits the second advent. It's out there in the future. Um, the, the speaker could see that there are two events, but what he couldn't see was the distance between them, like looking at two mountaintops a distance away. It's not double fulfillment, it's double reference. There's two different references that these two verses represent, but they're in the exact same context, and yet they're separated by more than 21 centuries at this point in time. Here's another one, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, very well-known. We're getting close to Christmas time. Verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Now that's 6a, that was fulfilled, the first advent. But then the, look at the rest of it. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. This awaits his second coming. You can look at um, Luke chapter 1 and Gabriel's statement to Mary, uh, and he connects it with the virgin conception. Okay, This child will be born of the Holy Spirit, and what's going on there is he's fulfilling the four elements of the coming Messiah, the eternality of him. You're going to have an eternal kingdom. You're going to have an eternal throne. You're going to have an eternal... Uh, you have to have an eternal king in order for him to sit on a throne eternally, which all these eternals are in part of the picture. Mary stumbled over the the idea of of how can this be since I'm a virgin? So in the context... Those two things are not only grammatically, syntactically linked, they're also theologically and doctrinally and prophetically linked, okay? And some theologians say, well, yeah, we, we like that, that got to have that virgin conception thing. We take that literally. But then they want to spiritualize the other part of that. Well, you can't do that. Those are linked in numerous ways in the passage. Um, but from Isaiah 9, the first part fulfilled at his first advent, the second part awaits the second advent. And then the rule of recurrence. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. You see this a lot in Scripture, the rule of recurrence. And it causes people some, some problems because they, they want to read the text uh, with sort of a, <clears throat> oh, maybe an, a Western kind of a mindset, and they, they get a little tangled up on, on how this operates here. But the rule of recurrence, the observation that in some passages an event will be described in a concise way, almost like a movie preview or trailer, this will be followed by a second, more extensive block of Scripture in which the details of that event are added. The first, shorter section may describe the event in a chronological sequence, and the second, more detailed description fleshes out figure speech, the description over the same time frame. So look at Genesis chapter 1. Even the first verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Boom. There it is right there, right? And then what follows are details of it for the six days of creation. But then when you get into towards verse um, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And it goes on to talk about the blessings and so on. But then... After that, you have Genesis 2, 4 through 25, that gives you the details of the creation of man and woman. Starting in verse 4, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And he goes on in more detail. And then he gets down into the creation of man. Um, the man was made... And then he talks about the rib in verse 22, and the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man, and so on. And then, of course, the description of marriage. So you have, it goes back and it takes the creation of man and woman and tells you how he did it in detail. So that's, that's the uh, rule of recurrence. And then look at Genesis chapter 10 real quick. Here's another example. These are all through Scripture. You'll run across these, and you'll you'll see them in your reading, and all of a sudden they'll sort of jump off the page. And by the way, you notice how what begins these, that last one, um, these are the generations of the heavens. And then chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations. There's a Hebrew word called toldot, and it means what became of, what became of. I teach through Genesis. I use those terminal, those terms for the outline. You can go through and you can outline the book of Genesis by this. These are the generations. These are the generations. But chapter 10, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. And it's going to tell you what happened uh, post-flood spread of humanity on the earth. And notice the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But what it starts out with, it starts out with talking about Japheth. Japheth, the sons of Japheth, and so on. But look at verse 5. From these the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Okay? Starts out with Japheth, and then he moves to Ham, the other another son. He fathered Nimrod, verse 11, and the begin or verse ten, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. From the la- that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Okay, and all these different people came from him. Of course, the Philistines did in verse fourteen, and then down in verse twenty, these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And the last one is Shem. Okay, from Shem come the Shemites or the 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 Hebrews. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, that's where the word Hebrew comes from, from that man right there, the elder brother of Japheth, the sons of Shem, gives all of his sons, and it goes on down to verse 31. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Okay, Post-flood occupation of land and with different languages. Right. Now, here's the recurrent part, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. This tells you the details of how they got spread all over the place and why, and why they have different languages. And, of course, the Tower of Babel story, right? And... Uh, now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, in verse 2, they found a plain, the land of Shinar, and settled there. And this, of course, was the attempt to uh, build a tower and a city. And uh, by the way, verses 1 through 9 are also a chiastic structure, with the focal point of that chiasm being in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And you know what happens. Verse 7 Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city, and so on. So that is a recurrent part of the story that goes back and tells you how they got scattered all over the place and how their language got confused. So this uh, that is the uh, the rule of recurrence. You can also see that in Matthew one one. Matthew's gospel starts out, the genealogies of Jesus Christ, and he looks back in time, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was looking down through history. He couldn't see that, right? But Matthew, the gospel opens up, the New Testament opens up with him just connecting the dots. Jesus Christ, son of son of David, son of Abraham. And then he goes around and he gives you that long genealogy, starting with Abraham all the way down. So it's a, it's a, the, he, repeats that story, but with much more detail. Okay, then, but wait, there's more. The rule of identity. You might have heard Dr. Barrick, if you listen to that, say that similarity is not identity. A common interpretive mistake is to observe the similarity or similarities between two events or persons and assume they are identical. 
And this is a corollary to the rule of double, double reference. One of the main differences is these, these verses or passages are usually separated in, in context. They're not right next to each other. And, um, Dr. Barrick in that message, he makes, he really camps on the idea of similarity is not identity and he uses the, he uses marriage as a, you know, that woman that you see that you might work with or maybe the neighbor wife, neighbor's wife, he says, you know, she may be similar to your wife, same height, same hair color and so on. So it's pretty, pretty humorous what he says. But remember, pilgrim, hey, that's not your wife. Okay. Similarity is not identity. So rule of identity. How about the rule of chronology? Well, we've talked about this. Timelines are a powerful hermeneutic. Chronology is important in Scripture from the concept of progressive revelation, what we've talked about, to the issue of prophecy and eschatology, also a corollary to the rule of double reference. Prophecy and eschatology, very important. Time, okay? There's, we often think of eschatology as, you know, its last things, and we think of the eschatology of the world or the church. But remember, there's also personal eschatology. Where is that person going to wind up? Where are they headed? Where are they going? It's critical, right? One of the reasons we preach the gospel is because people are headed in a certain direction. They're going someplace, and uh, we want that to change if they don't know Christ. Very important, rule of chronology. And then... The rule of eschatological reversal. This one's very interesting. You'll see this all over the place. Psalm 73, classic Old Testament. Um, Asaph wrote that psalm, and he's he knows God, and he knows what God is like. But as he looks around him, what does he see? He sees that ancient, old uh, problem. He sees the prosperity of the wicked, and he sees the suffering of the righteous. And he can't put that together. Why? Because he knows what God is like. He knows he's omnipotent. He knows he's omniscient. He knows he's righteous and holy. So how is this going on? Well, what he sees then, when he goes into the temple, he says, then I beheld their end. I beheld their end. And so eschatological reversal, what happens with the end of those people? Well, they wind up in destruction. And so you see this all through Scripture. Jesus taught this way. The last will be first, and the first will be last, as you look ahead in history. Eschatological reversal. Even Mary, if you read Mary's Magnificat, she mentions this. In fact, she looks back and she says, you've taken the, you've taken the starving people and you've fed them, and you've done this and you've turned things around. And so she just applies that to the future, and the future eschatological reversal. I mean, this is all through Scripture. Revelation, I mean, look at Revelation chapter 6, you know, the great men, the mighty men, the proud men will be where? Down in the valleys praying for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of God and the Lamb. Great men, mighty men, proud men will be crying out to God during the, that the rocks would fall on them to hide them from God's wrath. So you see this all through Scripture. And it's not just nations and countries, it's individuals, right? You, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you have experienced eschatological reversal. God did it like that, right? He changed your destiny by regenerating you and me. So it's, uh, it's, it's not just kingdoms and people and the wealthy. He, <clears throat> he does that <clears throat> for everyone he saves, eschatological reversal. He changes, and he's coming back, and he's not going to let this planet just spin off into the universe in its uh, polluted, perverted sense. He's going to come back. He's going to set things right. He's going to reverse what the first Adam failed to do. He's going to set the second Adam's going to set it right. He's going to recreate the the whole universe. So that's that's the big reversal that's going to take place. So rule of eschatological reversal. You'll see this all over the place. And then finally. The rule of phenomenon. Often the speaker or writer will describe an event, object, or person by what it looks like in language that may not be technically precise by contemporary standards. Okay? Again, that Article 13, uh, they reference that and say this, the Bible is still inerrant even though we can look at, uh, the rule of phenomenon. Okay? So here's an example of this. Phenomenological language. Friday morning, I call this little uh, site up. Kind of neat, kind of handy. I like looking at it. November 17th, 9.09 and 32 seconds. Look how precise this is. Bonner's Ferry, even the latitude and longitude. Look at the precision there. And first light 
at 622 and 24 seconds, last light at 438 and 3 seconds. Look at the precision there. Sunrise, 655, 12. Sunset, 405 and 15. Day length, 9 hours and 10 minutes. How much time is left in the day? Well, 6 hours and 59 minutes left for today's sunset in Bonners Ferry. Even the little, the little emblems, you know. Sunrise, sunset. But wait a minute. Is that really what's going on there? All this precision and all this scientific uh, analysis and down to the second of what's going on? But does the sun really rise and does the sun really set? Of course not. It's phenomenological language. And we still understand what they're saying. And uh, even though I'm making an issue out of it, uh, I look at this to find out, you know, and you're going to somewhere around the 20th or 21st of December, you're going to see the days begin to lengthen a little bit. It's kind of fascinating to watch because... They do just a tremendous job of doing this. Okay? So, any other thoughts or questions you might have? If not, I just want to remind you of what Professor Agassiz said when it comes to studying the Bible and interpreting the Bible. Look again, look again, look, look, look. Keep looking, guys. Keep looking, keep studying. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.